I am Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that asks, what's next for Baltimore? Today on the show, we're talking about lead poisoning. Lead poisoning has been an ongoing problem for generations in Baltimore. Over the past few years, there has been a lot of national attention on the crisis of lead in the water of cities like Flint, Michigan. In Baltimore, though, the most common way that people are exposed to lead is through old paint. The scope of the problem is wide, and many people who have been poisoned by lead may not even know it. Today on the show, we explore how we got here, how the city has been dealing with lead abatement, and learn how other cities are finding the funding to take on the massive task of safely getting lead out of homes. Joining me now to contribute to the conversation, I am pleased to welcome Harriet Washington. Harriet Washington is the author of A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind. She has been a Shearing Fellow at the University of Nevada's Black Mountain Institute, a Research Fellow in Medical Ethics at the Harvard Medical School, and also a Senior Research Scholar at the National Center for Bioethics at Tuskegee University. Harriet, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Wes. So in your new book, A Terrible Thing to Waste, you use Baltimore actually as an example of a city that's struggling with lead poisoning. Uh, when you thought about the context of all the locations that are struggling with this issue, why focus on Baltimore and just how serious a problem is lead poisoning here? We don't have a lead poisoning problem in Flint and Washington, D.C., Baltimore, New York, Pittsburgh, any of the places. We have a lead poisoning problem in America. Baltimore is deeply symbolic of the problem in America. So in Baltimore, you have a large percentage of the people who are lead poisoned, almost the entirety, are African-American children. So like the rest of America, it's very much a race problem in Baltimore, as it is elsewhere. And the solutions have not been logical, and they have not been attentive enough. They've been diluted by greed. People have been more concerned about saving money than saving the minds and bodies of our children. And that has resulted in the crisis we see here. You talk about this reality that there is this correlation between hypersegregation and lead poisoning, right? Even the cities that you had mentioned yes. before, these are also some of the most hypersegregated communities in our country. But when we're talking about the implications of lead poisoning and its impacts, this is uh, in many ways a black and white issue. Yes, it is. Segregation, which has worsened since the jury segregation was ended, is part of the problem, but it's only part of the problem. I mean, it certainly makes it possible to concentrate toxins in African-American areas, but segregation only potentiates lead poisoning. If our public health officials and our government had taken the steps that we know and have known for a long time would remedy lead poisoning, completely abating lead from housing, forcing landlords to comply with the law, treating children at the appropriate level, if they had done all these things, we wouldn't have a problem. Segregation has allowed it to happen, but the cause has still been the sultry response by public health and by the legal system. Can you walk us through the actual physical and mental impacts of someone who is lead poisoned? If you're, if you're talking about people who are lead poisoned, what do you, how exactly does it show itself? What do people see when you find someone who is actually lead poisoned? There's a myriad of effects. Certainly, I think everyone is aware that lead poisoning causes certain crises if your exposure is high enough. It's a life and death situation. But more usually, people don't die from lead poisoning. More usually, it lodges in their bones, it's in their blood supply, and of course, in the brain, its effects are extremely pronounced. Not only does it 
cause actual brain damage that lowers cognition, but also it causes more subtle behavioral damage, changes that tend not to emerge right away. It may not be recognized for five or ten years, so that by the time they are recognized, they're ascribed to something else. You know, a child of 15 is diagnosed with cognitive disorder or considered juvenile delinquent. And the real cause might have been the brain damage um, that he suffered as a result of lead exposure 10 years earlier. You wrote that people have known about the dangers of lead since the late 19th century. And it's still continuing to be used in paint for years to come. And it's still present in many things that we, that we still use and have access to and ingest and breathe. How has the thinking on lead and its safety and utility, how has that changed over the years, particularly when you consider the fact that the knowledge of it and the knowledge of the dangers of it is not necessarily a new phenomenon? We could even go back earlier to the 19th century. I talk about the fact that the ancient Romans used lead very heavily. Just like us, they found it a very useful metal, and they put it in their food, their delicacies, they sweetened their wine with it, they used it in their cosmetics, and they lined the aqueducts that carried their water with it. They had the exact same problem we did. Their water was being carried by lead pipes, so lead would leach into the water and cause problems. The same thing we're dealing with now. But if you talk about knowing the effects, you have to distinguish what people you're talking about. Because the people who have always known of the deleterious effects are the industry. Unfortunately, the lead industry in partnership with our governments, municipal governments and sometimes the federal government, successfully hid from everyday people and even from physicians the extent of lead's damage. So we had to find out slowly over um, decades and decades of testing and reports, etc. We were able to determine what the industry knew all along. What do you think it is going to take to create a truly lead-free society? Actually, a very simple solution. All we have to do is remove the source of pollution, which would not be difficult. We have housing in this country that is imbued with lead. It has to be completely abated, which means that all the lead has to be taken out. If it can't be taken out, the housing needs to be raised and rebuilt. We have lead piping in this country that carries water to most people. And that, too, has to be completely replaced. Now, There are those who argue that we could do the same thing by simply effectively relining the pipes, and they might be right about that. But whichever method we determine is going to work correctly, we need to apply that everywhere. Doing those two things would take care of the vast majority of exposures, but not all of them. We also have to look at these communities where people are living right on top of bus depots because some gasoline in this country still has lead in it, not gas for... um, modern vehicles, or for some older vehicles and industrial vehicles. So we either have to either ban that type of gasoline, or we have to take these depots and move them away from residential areas. These are the things that are very simple, but very expensive at this point, but they have to be done. If we don't do them, we're condemning more generations to this kind of brain damage. So it's really not optional. We've been speaking with Harriet Washington, who is the author of A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism, and Its Assault on the American Mind. She's been a Shearing Fellow at the University of Nevada's Black Mountain Institute and a Senior Research Scholar at the National Center for Bioethics at Tuskegee University. Harriet, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Liz. I've enjoyed talking to you. You're listening to Future City here on WYPR, and I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, 
we explore the history of lead in this country. How did lead become so ubiquitous? And why does lead exposure remain such a major problem? Plus, we'll hear how other cities and states are dealing with lead abatement. That's next. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Welcome back, and I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City, the monthly show that asks, what's next for Baltimore? Today on the show, we're talking about lead poisoning, which has been a major problem in Baltimore for generations, and asking how the city can successfully deal with lead once and for all. Now that we've heard about the scope of the problem in Baltimore and beyond, we're going to hear about the history of lead, find out about some of the surprising ways people are exposed to the toxic metal, and learn about how some other places, like California, are fighting to hold industries that contributed to the lead crisis accountable. I am now thrilled to have two remarkable guests joining in this conversation. The first is Ruth Ann Norton, who is the president and CEO of the Green and Healthy Homes Initiative, and also David Rosner, who is the co-director of the Center for History and Ethics of Public Health at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, and also the co-author of Lead Wars, The Politics of Science and the Fate of America's Children. Thank you both for joining today. So glad nice to, to be, be here. here. Yes. So, Ruth Ann, I want to first start with you. And, and let me say just for full disclosure uh, to all of our listeners, Ruth Ann is one of my heroes. I have adored Ruth Ann for years, and not just her commitment and her work, but her friendship. And so to have her on the show here is a, a special delight for me. So, Ruth Ann, it is so good to see you, and thank well, you. I love you, brother, and thank you for giving voice to this important issue and the many issues that you're trying to solve in this country. We'll stay on this journey together. Amen. Amen. Let's actually start there because there are a collection of things that you could put your time and your energy and your thoughts into, but you have made a life commitment to this issue of lead. Why? Because it is solvable, because I think it is one of the largest crimes that we have committed uh, on children and communities, and because if we want to level the playing field in the classroom and society and make a more just society that is truly one that has opportunity, you cannot do it without solving the issue of lead poisoning. There are certain things that we know in our society that we have to deal with, we have to live with, and we can make better, but the idea of ending it, this is something that you're like, we can end this. We can stop having it as a conversation. We can stop having it as something that we have to deal with. We actually can end this issue. And it's incredibly frustrating that we are having this conversation today because we could have ended it a long time ago. We could have ended it in 1921 and signed the League of Nations ban on lead-based paint that every other country basically in the world signed and the United States did not. Baltimore banned the use of lead-based paint in 1951, and yet today we are dealing with its toxic legacy and the impact it has had to rob generations of children in Baltimore and around this country from their opportunity to earn, to learn, and to thrive. Ruth Ann has hit it on the head. This is like the biggest public health indignity if this were happening around measles or 
any other disease that affected wide swaths of white children, of children who were not in poverty. I think that this issue would have been solved a long time ago. Uh, this is a terrible, terrible social injustice. We've known about the dangers. We've known about the causes of lead poisoning. We've known about the children who are getting sick for over a century. We know exactly where it is. We know what to do about it. And yet we've never addressed it. And it's really a, a human tragedy of untold proportions. So, but David, along those lines, I mean, we have used lead for a whole collection of different reasons throughout our history, and, and everything from sweetening wine to turmeric as a way of almost brightening the color. When did people start recognizing how dangerous of a substance this actually is uh, within our bodies and within our communities? Well, if you read you know, kind of public health textbooks, you'll know that lead has been identified as an industrial poison for centuries. But it's really the end of the 19th and early 20th century that we began spreading it around virtually every human being's existence. Mm. When we started putting it on the walls of all our homes, we put it in the plumbing. Lead became a mainstay of major industry that ultimately had a real stake in producing uh, this neurotoxin and uh, selling it. From late in the 19th century, we began to notice and really identify it, not just as a toxin that affected workers, miners, or other people in the paint trade, making paints, but we began to recognize that children themselves were getting poisoned. And then by 1920s, you saw a slew of medical articles and public health articles all talking about how children were living in what they called a lead world, a world in which their walls were covered with lead, their toys and their furniture was covered with lead, in which they were living in houses that had were painted with lead on the outside, and in which children were going into convulsions. And this was being discussed openly and, you know, very concretely within the Lead Industries Association, within the lead paint makers. They were identifying this as a real problem for them. But they saw it not as a public health tragedy, but they saw it as a public relations problem, that they had to make sure that people believed that lead was healthy and safe. And they began advertising literally to children themselves, telling them that they wanted to live in a a house painted with lead. They wanted to have bright colors on their walls. Uh, they gave out little paint books to kids in which they showed how lead could make their life happy, bright, and gay, as they said. Basically convinced them to give get their parents to take coupons and go and buy lead paint for, for their walls. So it was a concerted effort to undermine our understanding of the dangers of this deadly toxin. We talk about the measures that governments have actually done to be able to address this, some of which are decades-long measures. We're talking in the 30s and 40s and the 50s, and we still have this issue. Where's the disconnect between the policies that were actually passed to address this and why this has not been addressed 50, 60, 70 years later? I think historically the industry itself told us what the disconnect is. One, there's enormous interest in selling this stuff. Two, it's affecting the most disenfranchised people in the country. I think that if white children were affected as disproportionately as African-American and Hispanic kids, we would have solved this a long time ago. In 2016, the Maryland legislature actually started to require universal lead testing, mm -hmm. but it has not been as effective as, as at least the legislation shun. 
indicated? What's been the disconnect? Why, with a bill passed in 2016, are we still having a delta between who actually gets tested? Uh, well, it's an, an effort that we have to engage community. Community has to ask for it. Parents have to ask for it. They have to know that, that it's important. They're not getting that message enough. When a parent takes a child to a well baby visit, the way that we can enforce that it's happening in many ways is making sure in all of the Medicaid managed care contracts, but all the private insurance contracts, right, that that is required and tested and that we have an engaged community across the state. But think about this, Wes. When we test a child and we find that they have an elevated blood lead level, it will engage a lot of actions. But here's the bottom line message. We are too late. Any child with a, with a blood lead level of two micrograms per deciliter or more is going to have some cognitive impact. Between two and seven, will have some of the most aggressive cognitive impact, that early hit in their brain. You know, when I started this work in 93 in Baltimore, the Baltimore City Health Department didn't even see kids unless they had levels of 45 or 65, hmm. even though the Center for Disease Control was saying, to, you know, that 10 at the time was your level of poisoning and you were kind of safe if you had a level less than 10. We've always known in the medical literature that any lead in the system is dangerous, it's a neurotoxin. One very important case, I, don't, I guess you're close to Washington, so you may know, Shelton Whitehouse. But when he was attorney general, he started this suit in Rhode Island in which he was trying to hold the industry accountable, not just for paying for the damage that was done to children in the past, i.e. the children with elevated blood lead levels, but he was trying to make sure the industry paid for actually preventing disease in the future by having them responsible for removing lead from the walls of the Rhode Island. Um, he said that this is a public nuisance that's historically grounded. They knew what they were doing when they sold the lead. They sold it to us anyway, and we depended upon them and their goodwill. We put it on our walls, and now we have an ongoing public hazard, public health crisis, and it's their responsibility to make sure this doesn't continue to go on. So it went to court, it went to jury, and the jury came back with a decision to hold the industry accountable for anywhere between $1 billion and $4 billion in remediation costs. That was overturned by the state Supreme Court that came up with some kind of crazy decision saying that the state didn't have standing to sue on behalf of children who had not yet been harmed. But the suit then went to California and went to a, a judge, and the judge decided after a very lengthy trial that the industry had to be accountable for up to $1.15 billion in costs. It was appealed in the appeals court. It got through them, and it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was upheld. Uh, the amount has been reduced because of all sorts of legal wrangling. But the simple fact is that there is a model for actually preventing disease, not just waiting for the kids to be poisoned and then trying to figure out what to do about it. But let's think about if we went to scale and if we actually put this to work um, in the same way of looking at an infrastructure bill. What this means is that we would be able to return equity back to communities by helping to fund communities to de-lead themselves. Mm -hmm. It means public health jobs. It means construction jobs. It means environmental scientist jobs. It means data mapping. We have an opportunity to f find a way 
to help to return baseline um, investment into communities. It does mean the future opportunities of work, of workforce for a community, so not just that individual's path of where they may or may not uh, go and opening the door of opportunity, but it will change society. We've got to do this at scale, and we've got to link it to the opportunity to build equity, uh, build pathways of, of work opportunity and educational opportunity. And I don't think there's a better time than now. The consciousness of America has seen Flint, but we've had one crisis after another after another about lead. And every 10 years when we have a crisis, everybody goes, oh, my God, we have a crisis about lead, and then it dies out. We have to use this opportunity now to support the bills that are in Congress that want to raise the billions of dollars. You know, Jared Golden, who's a freshman from Maine, is standing up for America's kids and saying $12.5 billion, which will save us $250 billion in cost in this country in five years. It's time to act. And when we look at some of these, some of the leaders in in Congress, you've mentioned a few, whether they be representatives or whether they be senators, have been some of the real champions. What about on the, on the municipal level? Who have been some of the real champions who are sitting in city halls and state houses who have said, we will address this in our neighborhood, whether Washington acts or not? Well, let me tell you a, a current story. There is a mayor of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Deneen Sirachi. And Deneen was a public health person before she became mayor. We don't have that happen often. And she made a commitment to de-lead the city of Lancaster. And she called and asked if I'd come up and talk to her. And she said, you know, HUD's about to put out this big money. All these cities are going to have an opportunity to apply for up to $9.7 million. And I think Lancaster should do it. And she explained her vision. And at the conclusion of the meeting, we teamed up and she put in for this grant that was given to Cleveland and given to Detroit and given to Baltimore and given to Houston, some of our larger cities in America. And the fifth awardee was Lancaster. Hmm. But she didn't stop there. She uh, worked with us to uh, approach the local hospital system, who we are now working with to see if they can come in and be a co-investor. She's changing every policy that she can. It's a small town, but it's exactly what you have to do. If I were to ask both of you, can we solve this in the next... 15 years. David, I'll start with you. What's your response? Well, my response is we could solve it tomorrow, quite literally. Uh, This is not rocket science. We know exactly what to do. We need a national commitment, as Ruth Ann points out. We have the technical means by which to remove it. Uh, It would require that we think carefully about where the lead is, who it's affecting, where young children are living, uh, what the conditions of housing are in each community, and we could do a very systematic elimination. It doesn't have to be paid for all at once, but it could over time. If we started today, we could literally you know, address it in the next 10, 15 years. I'm going to be a little more aggressive than David, but I think in five years we could make a dent that would take us down by 75% of the kids being poisoned, yeah. and within 10 years we could really be there. Let me, t- you know, let me quickly say you asked something about public leadership. 
So Elijah Cummings has put a bill into Congress to take 2% of the net profit uh, from developers who will be, have the opportunity of opportunity zones to reinvest in lead and healthy housing. Congress should pay attention to that. There's going to be billions made, and out of that, that is a small price to pay and could be put back in, right? It is unacceptable to have what we see in public housing, whether it's NYCHA or public, any other public housing across this country, if it's federally owned, federally backed, or federally funded, it should be lead-free. The federal government today could stop the sale to uh, developers who then put houses back on the market in low-income communities of houses with lead-based paint and other things such as mold and mildew, where they take them and then put them back in community as rent-to-own so they're escaping the, the the laws to be upheld on safety. That's a that's a happen today. Stop it. Executive order, congressional act, however you want to do that, that can happen. And then I think uh, we have to have every governor committed to uh, redirecting every housing dollar uh, to have a lead safe standard attached to it in this country. To add into that a fairly high funded uh, lead. Uh, fund, right, and use that very strategically across this country, not only in urban communities, but in rural communities where lead paint is chipping, peeling, flaking, and there is no one there to help or hear. If we had somebody in leadership to do it, whether at the municipal level, at the gubernatorial level, or at the federal level, we have a lot of written commitment, even from the current administration that occupies the White House put out a plan to end lead poisoning. But you have to do it, you have to fund it, and you have to enforce it. I just want to put one last plug in for the state of California and for Sheldon Whitehouse and for their willingness to think beyond just government funding, but actually to think about the, our moral responsibility to hold industries accountable that have done the wrong thing mm -hmm. and to make sure they participate in this. Because if we just ask for public funding, we're going to see political backlash and political arguments that go well beyond the sanity of the issue or the logic of the issue. And I think that it really is important for us to make sure that the public understands how we got into this mess and who should be held accountable in order that this not happen again with other kinds of substances, other kinds of issues that are daily being uh, foisted on us. We've had the pleasure of being joined by my friend Ruth Ann Norton, who's the president and CEO of Green Healthy Homes Initiative, and also David Rosner, who is the co-director of the Center for History and Ethics of Public Health at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, and also the co-author of Lead Wars, The Politics of Science and the Fate of America's Children. Bless you both, and thank you so much for your work. Thank you. Thank you. Now that we've heard how cities like Lancaster and states like California are taking on lead abatement, how should Baltimore be approaching it? We'll tackle that question and hear more about how African Americans in particular are affected by the lead crisis right after the break. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that asks, what's next for Baltimore? Today, we're talking about lead poisoning in Baltimore and exploring how the heavy metal became so ubiquitous in the city. 
So far, we've discussed how lead poisoning affects people and especially children and learned about ways that some cities and states are trying to hold the industries that contributed to the crisis accountable. Now, we'll zoom in on Baltimore and ask how the city and especially low-income, predominantly African-American neighborhoods in Baltimore became so lead-infested and what the city can do to finally and fully deal with the issue. I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Lawrence Brown, who's the associate professor at the School of Community Health and Policy over at Morgan State University here in Baltimore and the author of the upcoming book, The Black Butterfly, Why We Must Make Black Neighborhoods Matter. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Pleasure. Listen, the pleasure's all mine. I, I, was, I was telling Dr. Brown when he first came in that I've been following his work for a while, so, uh, so this, is a, this is a joy to have you here and talk about an issue that is impacting all of us in this city and beyond. Uh, so your work behind it, your research behind it, and your push behind it, it, mm-hmm. it, it matters. And you've done a brilliant job throughout your entire career of showing that when we look at the heat map mm-hmm. of where this exists, it's not only incredibly concentrated, it's incredibly deliberate. So can you talk a little bit about how we see this showing itself in, in many places, but specifically in Baltimore? Well, I think, you know, it takes a bit of a historical stepping back to get a historical backdrop, you know, to sort of understand where this all comes from. You know, first in 1910, Baltimore becomes the first city to pass a residential racial zoning law under then Baltimore Mayor John Barry Mahool. And then that's followed by many more ordinances, policies, practices, systems and budgets that create what I call Baltimore apartheid. Um, You have racially restrictive covenants invented by the Roland Park Company in the northern part of the city. You have a real estate conspiracy where different realtors and code enforcement officials, court officials, they all collude to sort of create and solidify residential racial segregation. Then you have the residential security map, which is created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the federal government, uh, which later becomes the Federal Housing Administration. And that map, most people know, if they've seen it before, those four famous colors, red, blue, yellow, and green, which most people associate with redlining, particularly the neighborhoods that are in red. And so those neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, they don't receive capital. They don't receive bank lending, and they don't receive access to resources, basically because they're viewed as high risk. And the federal government on the heels of the Great Depression is trying to revive the housing market and bank lending. And so banks don't want to lend where the federal government isn't going to insure those homes, so those neighborhoods don't receive capital. And so what you have is a situation where these red line communities, they become these predatory zones of exploitation. They become places where hyper rents are extracted from renters. They become places where blockbusters sell homes to African Americans at exorbitant charges, what the activists for fair housing used to call a black tax. So black home buyers had to pay an extra fee, if you will, to buy these homes in black neighborhoods. So you have the situation where renters are paying more because basically black people can only live in certain places, which means the homes in those communities would become more costly if you look at the laws of supply and demand. So you have a situation where black homeowners and renters are paying more money to cover their rent or their mortgage. And so that's money that they can't use to pay for issues like lead abatement because they're paying for housing. Everybody needs a place to live. In addition, you have these operators called slumlords or landlords that are 
you know, they buy 100, 200, 300, 400 properties. And so they're trying to maximize profit in these communities. So they're not going to fix them up. They're not going to abate the lead. And so you have this, again, this zone of exploitation that's created by these local, state, and federal policies that allow the lead poisoning crisis to proliferate. It's a, both allowing the lead poisoning crisis to proliferate, but it's also even allowing certain neighborhoods and certain buildings to even be put where they're allowing this paint and this stuff to be in there, in knowing that it's been over 100 years mm-hmm. that people have been very clear about the health consequences mm-hmm. of this. However, in certain neighborhoods, mm-hmm. it's still okay to put X paint or X piping right. into a building. Right. I think the intentionality you're speaking to really comes from the lead paint industry that knowingly, in spite of the science, which is a lot of that science conducted here at places like Johns Hopkins, it's very clear, like you're saying, that lead is very damaging to children. But the lead paint industry is is having a good time putting lead in their product, even though they know it's a, a neurotoxin, damaging cognitive functioning, damaging other body systems when you have high toxicity. And so uh, I think there's where you specifically see the intentionality behind the way in which lead-latent environments are allowed to fester in the city. The other issue is lead used to be in gasoline. So, of course, gasoline emissions in vehicles, it goes into the air. Well, what happens when something goes into the air? Lead is a heavy metal. So it deposes into the ground. It falls to the ground. And as a heavy metal, it's not going to degrade anytime soon. So that lead is oftentimes still in the soil, sitting there, waiting hundreds of years. If you don't do anything to treat that soil, that lead will sit there. And I think that's another issue, whether you're talking about community gardens, playgrounds, or places where adults and other people are tracking soil into their home, and then children have pica behaviors where they put everything into their mouth. So they could be crawling on the floor, you know, pick up a couple of soil particles, put it in their mouth unknowingly, and there you have a vector of transmission as well. And so when we think about it on the housing side in particular, Mm -hmm. um, how does the lead crisis relate to the vacant housing crisis in the city of Baltimore? How do those two things conflate? Um, Well, I think there's a high correlation between a lot of those homes, which if they were built before 1978 or 1950, lead paint was used in them. So you have lead, you know, sitting in these properties, hanging on the wall, even on the outside. Once again, lead paint can fall from the outside of the home into that soil. So the problem is that lead is like so pervasive. You know, it's in the soil. It's in the paint. It's in the air down in Curtis Bay where you have incinerators emitting some lead poison into the air down there. And it's in the water. It's in the water, as Flint knows, as Newark knows. And in Baltimore, it was found in the 90s that our schools have lead pipes or pipes that are leaking lead into the water. Lead is coming at us from so many vectors. With the vacant housing, the issue you're going to have is that the demolition that is taking place. Lead is so dangerous that you can knock down a building, dust gets kicked up in the air. Well, lead is in that dust. So they found in Detroit, for instance, that the lead would spike whenever they were doing demolitions among children. There's a lot of demolition going on right now here in Baltimore under Project Core, Governor Hogan and the city's joint project. If environmental protocols aren't strictly followed, wetting down the property, making sure that dust doesn't get kicked up, putting a fence around the demolition and having netting that can capture that dust. 
if you don't have those type of protocols in place, children are probably being poisoned right now from the demolition for of vacant properties that have lead on the walls and even on the outside as well. Why is this particularly damaging for children? It's damaging because lead is, once again, a heavy metal. It does not belong in the human body at all. It's no safe level of lead. What makes it dangerous for children is what I said earlier. It can be in the dust. It can be in the air. It can be paint on the wall and paint lead. You know, as the Romans used to put lead into their wine vessels, uh, lead tastes sweet. And it's like, so apparently if a child is peeling a, one of those paint chips off the wall and they taste it, mm, it tastes good. So what are they going to do? They're going to eat some more and they're going to take more of it and ingest more of that neurotoxin into their bodies. When you think about this conversation around lead-based poisoning, where do you think the education level is in our general population? And have you seen a kick up over the past five years, seven years, 10 years about people's education about the damage of this? I, I think the education around lead is spotty. People declared victory too early. Has education risen? I think it has a little bit when you look at what happened in Flint. And I think Freddie Gray, when he was murdered as well, the story came out how he had been poisoned at a very high level. Right now, the CDC's reference level for lead is five micrograms per deciliter of lead in a child's blood. Freddie Gray was poisoned, and his twin sister, they were poisoned at 36 micrograms per deciliter of lead in their blood. Eight times the the federal level right now for lead in a child's blood. I think that also raised some awareness. And then Corinne Gaines, yes. who was killed by the Baltimore County Police. She grew up in Baltimore City and was poisoned by lead in Baltimore City as well. She was killed in 2016, Freddie Gray 2015, Corinne Gaines 2016. So those back-to-back, you know, high-profile police brutality cases where you have a black woman and a black man both with high levels of lead poisoning. I believe her family says it was either 12 or 22 micrograms per deciliter of lead. I can't remember which one exactly, but over 10, you know. And so, you know, you you begin to see the intersection between lead poisoning, crime, policing, you know, and the way in which, you know, this is really a, a much larger crisis than I think most people in this city really understand and, and really have understood to this point. We also know that these conversations are really taking place about communities that have a few things in common. Mm-hmm. Communities of poverty mm-hmm. and communities that are hyper-segregated. Right. You said, and I, and, and, I, and I love this quote, but you say, we cannot effectively address street-level interpersonal violence and crime without confronting the structural ecological crimes of toxic inequality, toxic inequality, mm-hmm. that have been allowed to persist in hyper-segregated and redlined black neighborhoods. Right, right. This thing, this issue, mm-hmm. we're not talking about something that has been a universal problem. The challenge mm-hmm. is, is that mm-hmm. this issue mm-hmm. in many communities has been solved. Right, right. It's just in many communities, it has not. Right, right, right. So when we think about that, how do we push this in an idea that this toxic inequality mm-hmm. that exists mm-hmm. also is very color-coded? Right, and that's why I started with the history of how Baltimore pioneered racial segregation because there's no mistake, there's no coincidence that Baltimore has this ongoing lead poisoning crisis. You know, a lot of people talk about the school to prison pipeline. I say it's a segregation lead poisoning school to prison pipeline Mm. Mm. that you don't start with the schools. You start 
with the lead poisoning and then how that's proliferating in hypersegregated black neighborhoods. When you think about the things that are going on right now, what things are you seeing that are giving you hope that we can actually solve this? Green and Healthy Homes Initiative, they wrote a report a couple of years ago, and they outlined like the cost to get rid of uh, lead in the paint in the walls. And I, I believe it was $845 million, which I was very much inspired by because now there's a number. Now mm-hmm. we can, you know, we know like, okay, well, if this is the amount, now the question is, where do we find the money to go and do it? You know, look, if we spend that amount to get rid of lead in the homes, if we stop polluting the air in Curtis Bay and stop lead being emitted in the air, if we replace those pipes and make sure no child can be poisoned in our school via the water, if we treat the soil and make sure we remove contaminated lead from many of our souls, especially our community gardens and urban farms, for goodness sake, Mm -hmm. we can greatly, greatly reduce any risk of a child being poisoned. We won't eliminate uh, the risk entirely, but we can cut it down tremendously. And I think the fact that science allows us to know how we can make that happen, the processes, the research is going on all the time to sort of say, look, you can add these amendments to the soil and it'll lock up the lead. And even if you ingest it, maybe make it non-bioaccessible or, you know, it will help cut down the lead levels over time or you know, scientists that can develop products that can make sure lead dust isn't going to poison children anymore. I think that's where the hope is for me, the solutions. But those solutions, you know, are on the horizon. We can't wait while babies are still being poisoned today. And the impact of these babies that are being poisoned today, we will deal with the consequences of their poisoning for the remainder of their lives. Absolutely. It's just like I believe we're dealing with the crime and violence in Baltimore City based on the poisoning happening in the early 90s uh, here in Baltimore. Now, what was happening in the early 90s? Well, there was a policy called Hope 6. So you had a lot of public housing being torn down. Lead was in public housing buildings as well. Lead paint. You know, you can see those videos where they use dynamite or whatever to blow those buildings up. Plumes of smoke are being emitted in the air when those buildings are torn down. And then families are given housing choice vouchers, formerly known as Section 8, and they're moving into private properties where oftentimes HUD or the Housing Authority of Baltimore City didn't conduct inspections. So then even moving into those private properties, they're moving into lead-written properties as well. So I think that helps explain, in my mind, uh, the tremendous amount of demolition and displacement and then the non-sort of uh, regulation of the private housing that public housing residents were moving into, that's a toxic mix right Right. there. And I think that contributed to the ongoing low-level lead poisoning because you have to remember, today the level is 5 micrograms per deciliter of lead, but maybe 20 years ago it was at 10 or 20. So the children that were poisoned at like 9 or 19, they wouldn't have been flagged. And those are adults right now. There are young adults. There are older teenagers on our streets right now. And so we look at, for instance, the quote-unquote squeegee kids. I hate that term. I like youth who clean windshields. Many of them, I believe, uh, may have toxic lead exposure. You know, many other children, toxic lead exposure. And and then we wonder, why are children doing this? Why are children doing that? Did they ever get any treatment? Did they get any behavioral therapy, nutritional therapy, therapy? We have to become, I think, much more scientific in our approach, much more 
cohesive in the way that we look at this because the science is very clear. It's just a matter of what are we willing to do about it at this point. So, Dr. Brown, what is the solution to all this? Well, I'm of the opinion that just like Flint, just like Newark, we need a state of emergency. I think we can't look at this and approach it in an incremental piecemeal way. We need to declare an emergency in our city on the ongoing lead toxic exposure crisis and spend between one to two billion dollars that it will take to make sure we stop future lead poisonings. And then we have to spend the money to also treat the people that have already been exposed to lead as well. The nutritional therapy, the behavioral therapy, cognitive therapy, there are things we can do. But we just can't sit by and allow the effects of lead poisoning, the children that have been and the youth and young adults that have been lead poisoned to just not receive the type of treatment and really compensation that they deserve. I'm talking about like medical care, insurance, and making sure they always have access to high quality food because certain minerals and vitamins and foods can help flush lead out of the blood and out of the body system. So I think we have to become much more comprehensive and only really a state of emergency can bring the sense of urgency to this crisis that I think we need. So what are some of those foods and minerals that we think can actually help to either reverse or to address some of these impacts? Right. And one of my colleagues at Morgan State, Dr. Alexander Wooten, and actually in our nutrition department, too, they can answer this question better than I can. But from what I understand, if you have minerals like iron and calcium enhanced diets, maybe vitamin A, D, E, those kind of vitamins, that helps certain foods molecularly bind to lead in the blood so that lead in the blood can be flushed out of the system. Mm. The calcium in particular, because calcium is so molecularly similar to lead that in the absence of calcium, in a calcium deficient diet, which many people may have in their if they're living in communities that are experiencing food apartheid, in these calcium deficient diets, they don't have calcium, and if they have lead in the blood, it's so similar that lead will go into the bone mm. because the calcium is not there to go into the bone. And the body says this is very similar. It uptakes lead into the bone, which means that lead can be released later into the blood later in life mm. to, to continue the cycle of poisoning. So I think, you know, you can see, again, this the intersection of earlier real estate and housing policy and now food policy and people living in communities experiencing food apartheid, how that all plays a role. There's this chain of that produces this inequality. And it's going to take paying attention to all of these social determinants to really scientifically address this in the most impactful and powerful way. Dr. Lawrence Brown is the Associate Professor for the School of Community Health and Policy at the Morgan State University and the author of the upcoming book, and I cannot wait for this book, <laughs> The Black Butterfly, Why We Must Make Black Neighborhoods Matter. Dr. Brown, continue to lead us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. So before we close out for this episode, I want to just leave everyone with a few thoughts. The lead poisoning issue has been responsible for an innumerable cost to the health, wellness, and stability of countless families and communities around this country. A child suffering from lead poisoning cannot learn at capacity. A parent suffering from lead poisoning cannot lead at capacity. 
A guardian cannot protect at full capacity. We have known about the impacts of lead on the human brain for over 100 years. We've also only made circumstantial efforts to be able to combat its pernicious and uneven impact on our communities. We have looked at the data and then turned away from the communities it was impacting. Now, the power of examples like California and Lancaster is that we can do something about this if we choose to. We can galvanize the public and private resources and public and private accountability measures that it would take to end this crisis now and right now. This is exclusively a question of will. Who matters and how much do they matter? What sacrifices will we make to ensure all communities have the opportunities given to them and are not unfairly snuffed out before individual choice can even enter into the equation? Our future cities will rely not only on our data and our research and our histories and our understandings, but on our boldness and on our humanity. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback, and you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. My handle is at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.